Today's reading will be from Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian, for reading that. Uh, before we get into this, I, I wanted to make a comment, or really give you guys an announcement uh, about Christmas Eve. Uh, we are having, or hopefully we are going to have a Christmas Eve choir. I was told I need to announce this. So if you guys are interested in hanging out with me all Christmas Eve, and maybe a few nights earlier in the week on Christmas Eve, we would love to have you be a part of this. This is a great way to just uh, help lead the congregation, help serve the congregation. And honestly, it's really a lot of fun to be able to sing these songs together. I, I assure you, it is a very, very low bar. Okay? So I'll just tell you a little bit about who's in the choir. Uh, and mainly that's Frank Switzer is in the choir. And so, like I said, it's a very low bar. However, if, if we don't hear enough feedback from people being interested by the end of the week, we will probably not have a choir because as of right now it's pretty much only Frank Switzer, and that would be disastrous, okay? Um, but uh, I wanted to mention that if you are interested, you can email Reagan. Uh, her email was up there just a second ago. Um, but we are continuing in our Advent uh, series as we look at this passage in Isaiah, specifically at Isaiah 9, uh, 6 where it gives the names of the God that is going to come and save Israel. Last week we talked about how he is the wonderful counselor, how Jesus, who came, was born in Bethlehem and lived his life and is now present with us still, is our wonderful counselor whom we can turn to all the time. This morning we are going to look at that, that second name that is given to Jesus. This idea that God is the mighty God. John Steinbeck wrote a book, uh, many of you guys know it, named The Grapes of Wrath. Um, in it, it, it's this incredible book. Uh, pro- many of you guys probably had to read it in high school or probably read the cliff notes of it in high school. If you just read the cliff notes of it, you should really go back and read the book. It, it, it is an incredible story of kind of human struggle. At the beginning, there's, there's this chapter, and it seems weird at first until you read the cliff notes and figure out why it's in there, uh, about this turtle and it talks about this turtle that's kind of crawling across the road and it's getting kicked around, beaten up, ultimately gets tipped over and is basically left for dead. And it's this long chapter, longer than it, you would expect for a chapter about a turtle walking across a road. And fortunately at the end, finally, Tom Joad, who's the main character in the book, turns the turtle over. Because ultimately the turtle would have died had it not been turned over. And it was this, this microcosm of the injustice of what's experienced in this book. It's about a family that is forced to leave their home in Oklahoma for the promised land of, of jobs and, 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 and uh, 
economic growth in California, only to find that there's just as much wickedness, just as much poverty, and just as much uh, issues there. And there's this incredible chapter uh, where they're in California, uh, and, and people are burning crops in front of these hungry people's eyes for the sake of driving prices up. And it says this, In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling, growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. See, I think why this book has the lasting effects that it has is because it speaks to something that we've all witnessed, that we all feel, we all, we all know is around us, that there is something unjust in this world. There is something about this world that is evil. There's something about this world that is broken. And if we start to pay attention, if, if we start to see it and look around us, there's this anger that I think arises within people. This deep frustration that this world is not the way it was meant to be. And what, this, what, what, what I think is so powerful about this book is it speaks to the anger that leads to hope. That I think we see present in the world. That there is this deep desire for somebody to come and fix it. There's this deep desire for somebody to come and make this all right. There's this brokenness, there's this darkness, there's this evil that is overwhelming this world. And we are longing for the day when somebody comes and makes it right. We need somebody who is mightier than the things in this world. We'll come back to the imagery of this book because it actually comes from Isaiah. We'll look at that in just a second. But this is something that we all feel. And what's interesting is the passage that we read, Israel was feeling this at the time. So when Isaiah is writing this book, at the very time that he is prophesying, the Assyrian army was bearing down on Israel. If anybody knows anything about the Assyrians, they were not kind people. They were known for their iron they were known for being mighty warriors. Unlike the Babylonians who came afterwards, they had absolutely no interest in assimilating people into their way of life. They were known for coming in and just wiping everybody out. Before this, this uh, happens in Isaiah 9, the Assyrians had wiped out the, the Syrians to the north of them, as well as, as, as the nation of Lebanon. And they were in the midst of starting to come into the northern kingdom of Israel. At the time, they felt this overwhelming and present evil. The grapes of wrath in them were filling. They were feeling overwhelmed, and they knew, they knew that there was not a chance. If the Assyrians decided to attack them of their own might, they would not win. And in the midst of this, this is what Isaiah speaks into it. He sees the fear, he sees the brokenness that they have, and he says, there is going to be a child that is born. The light will shine in the darkness, and he will be called the mighty God. And this is what they were feeling. See, the truth is, 
the world is met with a problem of evil. And if the Bible can't account for the problem of evil, then it can't address the truth of the world. There is evil in this world. There is injustice in this world. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, points this out uh, in a way only the book of Ecclesiastes can do. If you look up there in, in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, it says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There was a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. It says in 8.14, it says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, but there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. There's something unfair about the world we live in. Wicked people sometimes prosper, and righteous people sometimes don't. Wicked people live till, for as long as they want. I mean, within reason. <laughs> and righteous people get cancer. Or righteous people, no matter how hard they work, can't, can't find a job. There's something deeply unjust and unfair that we witness and experience in this world. There is a problem of evil. And what's hard is that this, this evil that we feel is not a weak evil. It is something that is powerful. The Bible actually talks about it, and it's not just the absence of good. It's not just this idea, but there is an actual being driving evil in this world. His name is Satan. He is very real, and he is very much so at work, and he is very powerful. So powerful that we cannot defeat him. He is like the Assyrians, bearing down on Jerusalem. Satan is real and is at work. And we'll come back to that point here in just a little bit about the nature of that. But we've all felt this thing. And, and, and in the midst of that, Isaiah speaks these words in there to comfort us. And it's not a vain comfort because he's speaking about somebody specific. He's speaking about somebody who would ultimately come and be the mighty God. That one to whom we have longed for, the one who is going to come and make all of this wickedness, all of this evil, all of this brokenness that we see around us, everything that is unfair, everything that is unjust, he is sending somebody to make it all right. He is sending somebody who is mightier than the evil that we feel and see in this world. And spoiler alert, his name is Jesus. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus here. When we read this, we need to see that Jesus truly is the mighty God whom the Bible is talking about. Now, I know that when we think of Jesus, we might look at that and say, like, of course that's true. But when we actually read the story of Jesus, of what we know in the Gospels, he doesn't come across as very mighty. He was a baby born in a manger, which seems really cool because we don't really understand what a manger is. He was a baby born in this gross food trough. 
So how is that possible? How is Jesus the mighty God? Well, I want to look and I want to give us a bigger picture of this Jesus who's coming. Because the Bible talks about the Jesus of the Gospels, but they also refer to Jesus as he comes again. Not a different Jesus, but a different way in which he comes, a different way in which God comes into the world. And I think for us to understand his mightiness, for us to understand the breadth of what this mighty God is doing to combat the powerful evil of this world, we need to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is, who this baby that was born in Bethlehem truly is. There's really two ways when it talks about the mightiness of God that the Bible is referring to. Yes, he's talking about the power of creation. Yes, the power that he has over all things. But there's really two ways that, it, that, that this idea of the mighty God comes up throughout Scripture. And that is that Jesus is mighty to judge evil and that Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is mighty to judge evil and Jesus is mighty to save. And I want us to look at these two truths, these two realities of the might of God. And we're going to start with, the, with Jesus being mighty to judge evil. I'm going to read some passages that we might not realize are in the Bible, but I think are important to know about this Jesus whom we call sometimes our homeboy. Um, so even earlier in this passage that Brian read earlier, starting in verse 4, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder... The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That is a statement of judgment. Saying all these people who have done terrible and wicked things to everybody, he is going to use them as fuel for the fire. Later in the book of Isaiah Isaiah 63, starting at the end of verse 1, it says, It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Then Isaiah responds, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? So he's looking at him and saying, You're covered. You're just red all over like somebody who has been stomping grapes, preparing for wine. This is how Jesus responds it says, I have trodden the wide and press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anchor and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Near the end of Isaiah, it says this in verse 15 in Isaiah 66. It says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Great Christmas passages. Even in Romans, it says this in 12 verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
This is just a cross-section of a major theme of scriptures. Every single prophet refers to this reality. Jesus talks about it. The epistles talk about it. That there is a day coming when evil will be judged. When God in his anger will pour out his wrath upon wickedness. This is a reality of scriptures. Now the truth is, this probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. I get that. We don't talk about the wrath of God very often in church. But for us to understand the mightiness that he brings in salvation, we have to understand that he deals with the problem of evil. He deals with it in his wrath. But I think there's a a few reasons why this might seem uncomfortable to us. And I want to project this because I think that this is true in my own heart as well. The first is that we don't take evil seriously enough. As human beings, we don't take evil seriously enough. And I think it's because we've allowed ourselves to be deceived. Like I, like, like I, I said earlier, Satan is real. Satan is at work. But I think Satan has deceived us into thinking that the things that he is doing is really not all that bad. And the things that we're experiencing are really not all that bad. Um, I've heard it talked about. Now, I don't know why this uh, is such a common uh, illustration of this reality. Because I don't know how many of us boil frogs on a regular basis. Um, But if you were to boil a frog, apparently there's one way to do it and one way not to do it. You, You don't boil the water first and then throw the frog in there. The frog will just jump out. Okay? And then you'll have a frog jumping around your kitchen, which once again, not entirely sure why we have frogs in our kitchen in the first place. But if you want to boil a frog, if you're interested, the way you do it is you put them in cold water. You take the pot and you put it on the, the stove and you slowly start to heat it. And it slowly boils the frog and the frog doesn't realize that the water is just getting hotter and r- hotter around him. It's just getting acclimated to it until ultimately the frog dies and you can do whatever you want with a boiled frog. I think the reason, the reason I even put that image in your mind uh, is because I think it's an accurate description sometimes of us. I think we're the frog that's boiling in the water. I don't think we realize the danger that surrounds us. I don't think we realize the danger of the evil that we are just so comfortable living in. We don't take it seriously. Because just like the frog, that evil is going to kill us. It is going to destroy us. And this is why Satan is so powerful. Because all Satan has to do, he doesn't have to do anything but lie to us. And he is very good at it. His power comes through lies. And he has lied to us in thinking that the evil that we commit evil that is surrounding us, the evil that we see brought on other people is not nearly as bad as it actually is. There's a great line in uh, The Usual Suspects, one of my favorite movies. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever played is to make the world believe he didn't exist. The reason why that resonates with us so much is because it's true. That is the greatest trick he ever played. It's to make us believe that he's not real, that he's something made up. 
that he's not really doing what he's doing. He's not really out to steal our joy, to destroy us. He's not really out there doing all of these things. So sometimes we'll, we'll meet with evil and we say, oh, it's just the way it is, and we just move on. But we do something, we're like, it's not really that bad. We say those things, we think those things, we are minimizing something that we should never minimize. We are frogs boiling in water. We are not taking seriously the evil that is surrounding us. And because we don't take seriously evil, we don't take seriously God's wrath. We don't take the wrath of God seriously enough. I want to introduce to you Jesus, but Jesus in a different, different understanding. When he comes back, I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Just in case you were uncertain as to who they were talking about, the Word of God. That's Jesus. He's describing Jesus right now. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Later, starting in chapter 20, verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This also is Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which if you have preconceived notions about the sermon, I would just encourage you to read the whole thing writes this, he says, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. We need to let that sink in. The mere pleasure of God, the goodness of God, is the one thing that keeps us from destruction. 
There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He's not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can do, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel that has found means to fortify himself, has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. There's great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. What are we that we should think to stand before him, at whose rebuke the earth trembles, before whom the rocks are thrown down? We don't take seriously enough the wrath of God. Because that is where his mightiness comes through. God is mighty to judge evil. There is a reason why the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. We just studied this in Proverbs. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I understand how we try to talk about the, the full scope of the word fear. But I think that there's a reason why it uses that word. Because there are other words in Hebrew and there are other words in Greek for reverence and respect. There is a legitimate element to where if you want to be wise, you should fear the Lord. There is a reality to the power of God that is terrifying. That should frighten us. The mightiness of God, when he comes to judge evil once and for all, will be terrifying. And that's why it talks about the fear not just the reverence, not just the respect, not just the honor, but the fear of the Lord in the Bible. I, I think I've mentioned this before. We, I, I'll, I'll read the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. And I started years ago. Uh, my, my, I guess he was my youngest son at the time. My middle son was three at the time, and we read it. And I remember getting to the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And like the last chapter, he's like, Daddy, what's a wardrobe? And I'm like, I maybe went above your head. Uh, I don't think we fully got the, gra- the this thing. But uh, we've read it multiple times, and I'll keep on reading it to him. Because I love, I love the depiction of Aslan in it, and, and particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, like, as a parent, you want them to love Aslan. Like, that's the point. You're supposed to love Aslan in it. You want them to just cuddle up next to Aslan like Lucy does. Like, You want them to cuddle Jesus like Lucy cuddles Aslan. That's the hope of every parent, hopefully, to cuddle Jesus. And so we watched, you know, so so we did this, and and then only after we've read the books can we watch the movie. So that's the rule. We have to read the books first, and then we watch the movie. And and particularly the the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, they do a pretty good job. I think they knew that there would be riots if they didn't do a good job with that one. So they, they kept as true to the book as they could. And there's this moment, and you see this great battle at the end, and you love Aslan, and Lucy's cuddling Aslan, they all love Aslan, it's great. And then you realize in the midst of the battle, and I was like, I almost like was like, I'm not sure if this is appropriate for my four-year-old to be watching, but Aslan like attacks the witch and basically like eats her. Like he, he destroys the white witch at the end. Like it is violent, it is awful. 
And you watch that, and you're like, yeah, it's true that you want people to love Jesus. And we're going to talk about the other side of his might here in a second. But if we don't realize that we're not dealing with a God who is safe and weak, if we forget that not only is he the God whom Lucy cuddles with, but also the one who devours evil, then we have misunderstood the nature of Jesus. We have failed to see the true might of God. We've tried to start talking to our kids about Satan, and we've tried to start talking to them about the reality of evil in this world and, and the fact that there's really only one person that can overcome it. And, and, and we, we, I, I'll tell my kids stories a lot, and we'll, I like to scare them a little bit. I feel like kids should have a little bit of fear just because stories are more fun when you're a little bit afraid, um, which I've gotten in trouble for before. But I was talking to them, and I said, guys, you need to know that there is, there is a real monster in this world. And I know that might be a little scary, and we'll talk about the fact that God is bigger than the monster, but you need to be very aware that there is a very real monster in this world. And his only goal is to steal your joy and destroy you. That's all he wants. And all he has to do is lie to you. And so when they're misbehaving, when they're doing stuff like that, we're saying, hey, you, you're letting the monster win right now. You're letting that happen to you right now. He is getting his way, and you're allowing it to happen. So let's talk about how Jesus can overcome that. Evil is very real. It is very present. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that. We know that that's true. We have felt the injustice of this world. And this is the thing. We talk about the wrath of God, and this is why it's so sad that we don't talk about it more, because the wrath of God is good news. It is good news. The fact that when, when you see this terrible injustice that is happening in the world, when people are dying way before they should, when people are being preyed upon, when uh, groups of people are being oppressed, when you see brokenness and all that stuff, it is good that God is going to bring vengeance. It is good that in the end, all that evil that is causing so much pain and so much hurt and so much just terrible things in the lives of people is going to be judged. That is good news. That the problem of evil is not just swept under the rug and ignored, but the problem of evil is dealt with with the mightiness of God's wrath. That is good news. We shouldn't be ashamed of this fact. We shouldn't hide these passages in the Bible, but we should cling to these in hope, knowing that this evil that surrounds us is going to ultimately be defeated. So we see that Jesus is mighty to judge evil. He is the true victor over the deceiving monster that is wreaking havoc upon the world. In the midst of that, we also see with equal measure, with equal might, that Jesus is mighty to save. That Jesus is mighty to rescue. Earlier in Isaiah, in that passage that we read, it says this. Sorry, I've got a bunch of, I'm all over the place here. Starting in verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness. Guys, we are walking in darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen 
a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Not only is Jesus mighty to judge evil, but Jesus is mighty to rescue. Jesus is mighty to save. We can see this, and it's not just Jesus. This is the nature of God, to show his might in rescuing people. When Israel becomes captive and slaves in Egypt, God, with, as they describe it, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, saves his people from Egypt. In the wilderness, he leads them with his might, rescuing them from starvation with manna from heaven, water from a rock. He leads them by a thundercloud by day and fire at night. He rescues them from the Canaanites surrounding them. And what's, cool, what's interesting is we actually see this play out in Isaiah. God rescues them from the Assyrians. So what ultimately happens is the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom. There's a reason why you don't know people from the northern kingdom. It's because they don't exist anymore. They're gone. And they come into Judah, and they're surrounding Jerusalem, and there's this giant siege, and Hezekiah is king. And Hezekiah prays and says, God, we need you. We need your might. And then in the middle of the night, basically God comes down and just sends confusion in the camp of the Assyrians. And they start just battling each other and killing each other, and they wipe each other out, and they're gone. God, with a mighty hand, rescues Israel at the time. He rescues them over and over again, and ultimately this great rescuer enters into this world by a poor couple in the middle of a barn. And that's the mighty God that we oftentimes know and are thinking about at Christmas time. And Jesus himself refers to himself in that context. In Luke, verse 19, he says this. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came here to do. He came here to be mighty in his salvation. And then when we see Jesus again, after all of that weird and terrible things that we see with judgment, we see this in Revelation 21. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do we realize the power of this truth? I think we have to ask ourselves that. Do we realize the true mightiness of God? That he with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm has reached out to us and redeemed us from slavery. He has rescued us from the slavery of Satan and is drawing us with his might 
to, his, to himself. So we realize this power. That God is using all of his might and all of his power to rescue us. That brings us back to this baby born in Bethlehem. And it's a question that we have to ask because we have to ask why did Jesus not just come the way described in Revelation? That's a fair question to ask. Why did this mighty God who is righteous and righteous in his anger, just in his vengeance, why did he not first come into the world the way they describe him in Revelation? Why did he not first do that? Why was he born this way? This is one of my favorite themes that we hear in Christmas songs. This juxtaposition of the mightiness of God and the weakness of this baby. We sang about it last last week when we were saying, come and stand amazed, you people. It says, come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gifts, this newborn child. Listen to this. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor and see the fullness destitute. In the song Joy is Dawn, which is a song we'll sing next week, it says this, Sounds of wonder fill the sky with the songs of angels as the mighty prince of life shelters in a stable. Hands that set each star in place shaped the earth in darkness cling now to a mother's breast vulnerable and helpless. The psalm that we read during the lighting of the candle, at the end it says this, Psalm 8510. It said, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. He's referring to Jesus. He's referring to this God. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So I ask again, we're looking at Jesus as we think about Christmas. How is this the mighty God? How is this him being mighty to save? Why didn't he show up the way he showed up in Revelation? He was just. He would have been fair to do that. But why did he come in the way that he did? See, there's a real problem, and, and, and you need to hear my whole statement for this to make sense. But in the Bible, it talks about this is kind of what it means ultimately in judgment, that we will one day be judged, and we will be judged by what we have done. I know that, listen to me through this, but it talks about that we will be judged by what we are done, what we have done, according to our deeds. It says that in Revelation. And God knew that because of the pervasiveness of wicked, if he didn't do something to give us a way to have righteousness, that when that day came, nobody would stand. He knew that if he brought his vengeance before he brought his mercy, no one would make it. No one would be rescued. And so for him to be both fully just and fully loving... God had to come into the world first as a redeemer. He had to come first as the sacrificial lamb, the gate the righteous could enter through. And that's what we see in Jesus. It's where both God's wrath and God's love meet. 
in the person of Jesus. He's born into the world first to save it, first to redeem it, first to show its mercy, first to take all of the pain, all of the evil, all of the weakness, all of the wrath of God upon himself on the cross, bear that for us, and now the only deed we are held accountable to is the deed of faith. When we stand before God in the fight on judgment, what makes us righteousness righteous is not our deeds, it's not what we have done, but it is the fact that we have put our faith and trust in the righteous one who has come to save us. That is why he came. And that's why when we look at Jesus so vulnerable and helpless, we look at him walking through this, and even in the midst of his life, at every opportunity he had to take vengeance, he chose silence. At every opportunity he had to save himself and be this mighty, powerful God, he chose meekness. He chose to humble himself. But in that, there was an incredible might. I just, I, I picture it, the amount of strength and mightiness it took for God to restrain his godness in the midst of all of that. When they were beating him, when they were falsely accusing him, when he was hungry in the wilderness, when he is in the midst of this whole life where he is witnessing and feeling the weight of all of this brokenness and evil, the might that it took to restrain himself in the midst of this is a might that we can't even imagine. And that was the might that he chose to use to save us, to redeem us. He came first as a redeemer and first as mercy. But as we think about this, we can't forget the full scope of Jesus. That won't be how he returns. We know this because the Bible says it. He will not enter that way. He will not come when he comes again as the Redeemer. He's already accomplished that. He will come as the judge. And because of that, there is an urgency to how we respond to this truth. In Philippians, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's really interesting is in that phrase, he's not making a distinction. He's not saying every person who believes will bow, and every person who has professed Christ will then once again profess Christ. What he's saying is there will come a day when every single person in this world, dead and alive, will ultimately recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That that will be made true eventually to everyone. And on that day, that will be either a great day, a day of incredible joy, or a day of incredible fright. My hope is that every single person in this room sees that as a day of incredible joy. Sees that as a day of incredible joy. God is mighty to judge evil. And yes, there is an evil and wickedness out there, and it is good news that God judges it, but there is an evil and wickedness in us. There is an evil and wickedness in our own hearts, and if we think that we can stand before the mighty judge on our own accounts, then we are kidding ourselves. And we are a frog boiling in water, waiting to be destroyed. There is only one thing who is mighty to say. There is only one 
person who is mighty to save us, and that is Jesus. And my hope is that every single one of us would turn to that incredible truth. That none of us walk away trying to stand on our own before the mighty God who is mighty to heal and mighty to destroy. So we have to ask, what will we do in light of the presence of the mighty God? We need to remember that the grapes of wrath are filling. And the day is coming for the vintage of the Lord. That God has heard the cries of his people. God has heard the wickedness. God has heard all, these, all, all the kids in the world who are abandoned and abused. He has heard all of that. And he has grown weary of that wickedness. He has heard all the brokenness that comes from war, all the death, unnecessary death and destruction that comes from that. And he is growing weary. His patience is running thin. He hears all the terrible things we say to one another and do to one another. And his patience is growing thin. The day of the Lord's vintage is coming. And you have to wrestle with this. I'm just going to leave you guys with that. You have to reconcile the reality of this truth. That that day will either be a day of incredible joy where you meet the mightiness of God as one receiving this incredible gift of being rescued out of slavery. Or you will see the mightiness of God in judgment and be like Egypt, who was left devastated at the bottom of the Red Sea. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful, God, that you are the mighty God who saves us. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the mighty God who has brought your redemption to this world, Lord. I pray that, Lord, there would be a healthy fear in us. Lord, that the terrifying reality, God, that you are the God who judges, that you are the mighty God, Lord, who is, yes, coming to save, but also coming, Lord, bringing vengeance and wrath upon the evil that is in this world. God, I pray that nobody in here would deceive themselves into thinking that they can stand in the midst of that. Lord, that their righteous deeds are good enough, Lord. Lord, our righteousness, as, as you say in the scripture, is, is like a dirty rag. Lord, and the only righteousness, Lord, that is capable of saving us is yours. Pray that we would cling to your righteousness, Lord, that we would give up any hope, Lord, of saving ourselves and turn to the one who is mighty to save, Lord. That you are the one who is mighty to save. Jesus, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would call us. Lord, fill us. God, that we would respond appropriately to your goodness. We pray this in your name. Amen.